Okay, well, I'm very um, thrilled to welcome uh, Mr. Omar uh, Abdullah. Um, Omar is a uh, former union minister in New Delhi and former chief minister of Kashmir. Um, Omar is not new to the UK. I didn't realize this. In fact, he was born in the UK in Essex. I think perhaps that English um, origin explains why I think perhaps unique amongst the Indian politicians, we had to restrain him from turning up five minutes early, <laughs> holding him back uh, there. So that was particularly uh, fun to see. So a, a big thanks to um, area studies, and particularly the Contemporary South Asia program, um, and to the Wolves in South Asia Research Cluster that have organized the event, particularly uh, Sudanshu, uh, for some valuable um, efforts. Um, big thanks to Kate Sullivan and to uh, St. Anthony's College for um, hosting this event in the, the Nissan um, Hall. Um, so we had a chat about the uh, the format, and we thought a kind of relatively short 15-20 minute um, presentation from Mr. Abdullah, so we've got to maximize time for questions. Now, obviously, Kashmir is full of controversial issues and potential questions, uh, but you know, this is um, a forum for you know, courtesy, debate, and discussion, and the free exchange of ideas. So to make sure as many of you as possible get a chance to answer questions, I'd ask you to uh, not make statements and keep, try and keep your questions relatively short. So I'm going to pass now to Sudanshu, who's going to give a more uh, personal introduction to uh, Mr. Abdullah. I don't have a podium mic, so I'm sorry, I'm just going to hold this here. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, I'd like to reiterate what uh, Professor McCartney just said and thank all the student volunteers and the administration and staff uh, for their relentless effort. Um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Mr. Omar Abdullah, who is the Chief Minister of Jammu and Kashmir from 2009 to 2015. Uh, currently, he serves as the Leader of Opposition in the JNK Assembly and represents uh, Beba as a member of Legislative Assembly. In 1998, Mr. Abdullah became the Member of Parliament of the 12th Lok Sabha. In 1999, he was re-elected to the 13th Lok Sabha, uh, in which he became the youngest minister at the age of 29 years old, when he was sworn in as Minister of State for Commerce and Industry. Uh, in July of 2001, he became the youngest minister to hold the portfolio of external affairs. Uh, which he resigned um, after a few years to prepare for the Jammu and Kashmir Assembly elections. Uh, Mr. Abdullah is the son of Farooq Abdullah, who has served as the Jammu and Kashmir's Chief Minister and the Union Minister on multiple occasions, and he's the grandson of Sheikh Abdullah, who served as the Prime Minister of Kashmir and later the Chief Minister of the State. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Mr. Omar Abdullah. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Great. Well, uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for having me here. Uh, it is indeed uh, a distinct honor for me uh, to be here in, in uh, Oxford. I've been asked to talk about Kashmir, India, and the future. Let me start with the, the future part of it. If anybody comes and tells you, that they can, with any degree of accuracy, predict the future uh, of Jammu and Kashmir, please throw them out, because they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. If in 1990, uh, when militancy uh, broke out in Jammu and Kashmir, 
if you had told me then uh, that in 2017 I would be talking to students and others in, in Oxford University about a violent Jammu and Kashmir, uh, I wouldn't have believed it. I wouldn't have believed that the conflict would have lasted as long as it has done. Uh, that said, I think it's important before we reach uh, the point where we are at now to understand how we got uh, to where we have done. Now, the subject is Kashmir, India, and the future. Uh, therein lies uh, the first part of the problem. Jammu and Kashmir is not just about India. It's also about Pakistan. Jammu and Kashmir, the issue of Jammu and Kashmir is a product of the partition of erstwhile India into India and Pakistan in 1947. When the two nations were formed, the princely states uh, of uh, India were asked to make a choice between joining the Union of India or Pakistan. All states in India opted uh, to join India, barring three. Hyderabad, Junagadh, and Jammu and Kashmir, for two different reasons. Junagadh and Hyderabad were Muslim-led states of Hindu-majority populations. Jammu and Kashmir was different. It was a Hindu leader, Maharaja, of a Muslim-majority state. Now, Jam uh, Junagadh and, and Hyderabad were convinced uh, over time to, to, to join the Union. They did so without precondition. In the case of Jammu and Kashmir, things were rather different. The Maharaja showed no inclination uh, to choose between either India and Pakistan. In fact, asked to be given time to decide. One gets the sense that given uh, an opportunity, the Maharaja would have opted to have had Jammu and Kashmir as an independent unit uh, with India, Pakistan, and China on three sides. That decision was taken away from the Maharaja by the invasion of uh, tribal raiders backed by regular Pakistani army troops uh, in 1947. The Maharaja at that time reached out to India for assistance, military assistance. He was told quite rightly that, look, you are an independent unit, you are not part of India, and therefore the Indian army has no business coming to help you. You either exceed or we can't. There's nothing we can do. Even under those circumstances, uh, the Maharaja chose to negotiate the terms under which Jammu and Kashmir would accede to the Union of India. And there lies one of the most fundamental differences as to why we think Jammu and Kashmir is, cannot be compared to other states uh, within the Union of India. Often this comparison is made that why is Jammu and Kashmir different? Why, why, I mean, if you can have Gujarat and Tamil Nadu and all the other states that have no sort of problems being a part of the Union of India, why does Jammu and Kashmir think it's different? Well, Jammu and Kashmir thinks it's different because it became a part of the Union under very different circumstances. Even with uh, an invasion and the prospect of war, the Maharaja negotiated with the Union of India, ceding power only in four important areas. The Union of India was to be responsible for currency, communication, defense, and foreign affairs. Everything else was to be the domain of the state, which meant that the Supreme Court of India, the Controller and Auditor General of India, 
the Election Commission of India, the Indian Administrative Services, Foreign Services, etc., would not have jurisdiction over the state of Jammu and Kashmir. The Union of India found these terms acceptable. Jammu and Kashmir was allowed to retain its own flag and given its own constitution. And therefore, when, when I have often said that while the rest of the states, the princely states, first acceded to the Union and then merged, Jammu and Kashmir is the only one that kept its own distinct identity. We acceded to the Union of India, but we did not merge. Now, over time, that this, the, 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 uh, the framework for accession has gradually been whittled away. It started in 1953 with the dismissal of the then Prime Minister, because at that time, you had a Prime Minister in Jammu and Kashmir, not a Chief Minister. You had a Sadri Riyasat and not a Governor. The dismissal of the elected Prime Minister of Jammu and Kashmir in 1953 began the gradual sort of reversal of the circumstances or the, the framework within which Jammu and Kashmir became a part of the Union to the point where you are now, wherein there is very little that differentiates Jammu and Kashmir from the rest of the country in terms of the constitutional framework. We still have our own constitution. We still have our own flag. But most of the laws and rules that apply to the rest of the country also apply to Jammu and Kashmir. Over time, uh, unfortunately, uh, due to various sort of misadventures on the part of New Delhi, vis-a-vis uh, -vis dealing with elected state governments, particularly the dismissal of an elected state government in 1984, and uh, the misadventure of the 1987 state assembly elections, which were widely believed to be uh, sort of rigged and gave rise to uh, the violent struggle that you saw uh, unfold in 1989-90, the situation in Jammu and Kashmir has reached the point where it has today. Now, the reason I, why I talked about Pakistan in the subject matter is that for us to be able to address the future, you need to address both dimensions of the problem in Jammu and Kashmir. There is the internal uh, disaffection amongst a significant chunk of the population, particularly in the Kashmir Valley, but also in the mountains of Jammu region. I do understand uh, that there is this, this, this perception that is allowed to flow that it's all about money, it's about the economy, it's about jobs, it's about uh, sort of anger amongst the youngsters. But it's not. That's a very simplistic way of looking at the problem in Jammu and Kashmir. The root of the problem lies in the politics of Jammu and Kashmir. It lies in the inability of India and Pakistan to agree with what to do about Jammu and Kashmir. For India, Jammu and Kashmir is a symbol of the secular republic that was born out of uh, partition. For Pakistan, Jammu and Kashmir is a the unfinished agenda of partition because a Muslim majority state should never have been a part of India. It should have been a part of Pakistan and therefore had no business going to India and subsequently perhaps is seen as revenge for what happened in, in 1971 with the dismemberment of East Pakistan and West Pakistan. So India and Pakistan first need to decide what it is they want to do about Jammu and Kashmir. And then both sides need to decide what to do about the parts of Jammu and Kashmir that they control. I'm not going to get into too much detail in terms of why we are where we are, because I'm sure uh, 
it's going to get covered in questions. But in terms of what a future framework might look like, my own sense is that a solution that allows either country to claim victory is a solution that will not work. If either India or Pakistan is able to say that out of this entire process, one of them has, has won and the other has lost, it's not going to work. Ideally, if a solution allows the people of Jammu and Kashmir to feel that they have gained out of the last 27, 28 years of, of turmoil and, and more than 70 years of, of uncertainty, that's the only solution that will work. Therefore, territorial give and take is not an option. I do understand where the BJP is coming from when they say that the entire state of Jammu and Kashmir is ours. Well, yes, on paper it is. The entire state of Jammu and Kashmir did accede to the Union of India in 1947. But the entire state of Jammu and Kashmir has not been a part of India since 1947. Uh, you fought numerous wars. How much territory have we brought back? During the Kargil War, there were express instructions by the government of India that the sanctity of the line of control has to be maintained. No Indian troops, no Indian planes or helicopters crossed the line of control during the Kargil War. So we have accepted more or less that this is where our respective territories lie. So to my mind, a solution that emerges along the line of control is the only reasonable solution that will work. But that addresses the external dimension of the problem. The internal dimension of the problem can only be addressed if there is a meaningful and a sustained dialogue between the Union of India and the state of Jammu and Kashmir to restore to the greatest extent possible the autonomous position that existed between 1947 and 53. Look, please understand why the Kashmiri people feel aggrieved, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop at that. Accession was facilitated through a negotiation where the union was responsible for only four things. Jammu and Kashmir has remained a part of India since 1947. But the terms under which Jammu and Kashmir became a part of India have been changed drastically. Now, it's like I decide to sell a book to Professor. I hand over the book to him. I take 10 pounds from him. I say, the book is yours. 10 pounds, we're done. Later decide that 10 pounds is, is a bit too steep a price. Reach into his pocket, extract a bit more money from him. The book is still his, but I'm continuously extracting more and more. By the end of it, I paid a huge sum of money for a book that I originally agreed uh, to buy for 10 pounds. The book has still remained his possession, but the quantum of money that I've extracted for it has gone up drastically. That's where Jammu and Kashmir is today. We acceded to the union saying that you are responsible for these four things. No problem. 
over time, we have been told you can't question accession, no problem. But the terms under which we exceeded have been changed so drastically that they cease to resemble what they were in 1947. And then you wonder why the people of Jammu and Kashmir come out and protest, or why some of them have sort of taken recourse to, to violence and picked up the gun. It's because they're frustrated that their political aspiration, their political thought has found no reflection in what, uh, in, in how New Delhi has dealt uh, with the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And that needs to change. So hopefully, in the future, as I said, I can't predict with any degree of certainty, but with a fair degree of hope, one can expect uh, that India and Pakistan can agree to live and let live, that the line of control can become uh, the de facto border, that it becomes an, an, an invisible border. That people, because if, it, if it's going to be a line that is that as it exists today, where people are not going to be allowed to move freely, then that won't work either. It needs to be what has been envisaged in, 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 in SAFTA, which is a free, free trade area, free movement. People from one side of Jammu and Kashmir free to travel to, to, to the other side. That addresses the India-Pakistan dimension and, uh, as I said, the greatest degree possible of autonomy restored to the state of Jammu and Kashmir is the only way in which we will address this problem once and for all and 10-15 years down the line you won't be inviting me back here uh, to discuss uh, India, Pakistan, Kashmir in the future because it will no longer be an issue uh, that is of any interest to you whatsoever. And I honestly, I yearn for that day uh, when you come here, when you invite me to discuss demonetization <laughs> and whether Prime Minister Modi will win three elections in a row or four, uh, and you absolutely have no interest in what's happening in Jammu and Kashmir because it's just like any other place. So that's about it, and I'm happy to take your questions after this. Thanks very much. Okay, we have time for questions. Um, so keep the question short. Yeah. I have two questions. Uh, first, will you agree with my analysis that difference between Hyderabad, Junagar, and Kashmir was actually your grandfather? Uh, <laughs> I mean to say, because of him, there was difference uh, in Kashmir that uh, Kashmiris were divided on two lines, like uh, Muslim conference and national conference. So is it because of that that Kashmir is still a problem? The second question is, what is your take on the uh, resolution formula that was agreed in back channel back in 2007? Thank you. Look, accession was decided by the Maharaja. The fact that my grandfather felt that the future of Jammu and Kashmir was more secure with India than with Pakistan, sure, I'm, I, 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 would, I would assume that bolstered the Maharaja's position. Uh, but the ultimate decision was uh, was, was taken by the Maharaja. It's his signature that's on the instrument of accession. Uh, I, I'm not sure what your question is but with regard to the national conference and the state. The similar conference. decision was taken, of, taken in other states by the you know, rulers of that state, but that didn't. No, but that's as I said earlier. I mean, So the people of Kashmir were divided, whereas the people of Junagar and Hyderabad were not. No, the people of Kashmir were not divided. 
the people of Kashmir got divided because Jammu and Kashmir got invaded. Mm. It's not as if one part of the population just upped and left. <coughs> the fact is that in, in 1947, Jammu and Kashmir was invaded, and that's why, uh, I mean, that's why that's how Jammu and Kashmir ended up in the United Nations Security Council. Uh, it was following an invasion that that Jammu and Kashmir was taken to the United Nations Security Council, and that's where you got. United Nations Security Council Resolution 47 or 48. It wasn't because the population was disaffected. It was because uh, Jammu and Kashmir was invaded. What would you say okay. about Sorry, that's that's some some national conference and national conference? Right. conference what about it? Um, people were divided into national conference. Nobody was. No, people weren't divided. The national, the national, uh, national conference was born out of the Muslim conference. It was because my grandfather felt that for a party that he wanted to lead. It had to have space for everybody. It couldn't just be a party of Muslims for Muslims. And that's why he changed the name from the National Conference, from the Muslim Conference to the National Conference. So that it, it, it created a canopy for all communities in, in Jammu and Kashmir uh, to come together under. Okay, let's pass on. Sorry, what is the second one? Second oh, the, the 2007. Yeah. I believe that that is the closest we have come to resolving this issue, at least in my lifetime. So you agree with that formula? Uh, happy with that? Look, I'm happy with a formula that allows Jammu and Kashmir to live in peace. I'm happy for a formula that allows India and Pakistan to agree that 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 enough is enough. There were elements of that formula that I believe would work. Uh, the fact that Pakistan would no longer talk about the right to self-determination. The fact that there was no longer talk about of territorial give and take, it was it was uh, remarkably different from what one has heard in the past. Uh, there were some elements that I thought would be problematic, like the the uh, the joint legislative body that was sought to be created. But look, I mean, if you don't nothing ventured, nothing gained. Uh, I, I mean, there were there were definite workable elements that came out of that framework. Okay, just, uh, just a reminder to keep comments short, rather. Yes. That's it, thank you. Um, you uh, couched your um, uh, reading of autonomy historically as being quite legalistic, um, that it's the instrument of obsession that determines the need for autonomy. But your grandfather also couched it in socialism that um, Kashmir wanted Naya Kashmir, and therefore uh, it requires a political unit in order to achieve that. Um, things have gone a fair distance away from that, but apart from the kind of cold, sort of empty legalism, um, is there anything positive that, that, that um, informs your vision of why Kashmir needs autonomy? Um, is it, you know, is, is, is it a new, is it a different type of <coughs> political uh, or civic nationalism, socialism? Is it religion? What is it? What, what it's is not it? religion. No, no, of course not. But I, I know that would be your answer. But what is it then, more positively, that um, leads you to believe it, 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 it addresses a sub-nationalist sort of I, uh, uh, identity without reopening the whole question of, of uh, accession. I mean, the fact is that there is a strong sense of identity in Jammu and Kashmir. Look, 
that's not different from other parts of the country well, as well. Punjab. But 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 Jammu and Kashmir, please understand. In the in the case of Jammu and Kashmir, it was actually addressed and sanctified in the constitution. There is an acceptance that there is a sub-nationalistic ideology and 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 sort of uh, passion that that needs to be understood and and uh, uh, sort of given a, a framework. Uh, that I mean. For us, allow, I mean, it, it, it leads us to believe that we will be the masters of our own resource base. That we will decide within, sort of, a, 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 I mean, within the framework of, of what the, con I mean, the constitution with regard to sort of surrendering uh, currency, communication, defense, and foreign affairs. Leaving those aside, we get to decide our own future. We get to decide how we use our water resources. We get to decide how much electricity we will generate from our rivers. We get to decide our taxation policy. Uh, we, we, we will not be dictated to by Delhi in terms of what rates of, of uh, goods and services tax will apply to service A, B, or C. You know, this is all part and parcel of, of uh, what an autonomous Jammu and Kashmir would look like. But we've also gone further. We've said, look, India is too diverse a country. Uh, to be sort of micromanaged the way we've sought to do it in 70 years. Use Jammu and Kashmir as an experiment. And then, look, uh, why don't look at the similar autonomy for other states? I know they're not demanding it, but I, I have no doubt that they would love to have it. So you're saying it could, it's not just it's asymmetrical? Let's, let's it's not it. just? Asymmetrical. No. It could be more. There could be. Why not? <clears throat> you touched upon on the United Nations resolutions. Uh, what's the role of United Nations at this time and those resolutions were passed in 1948? Would the India and Pakistan uh, <coughs> obey that and go with that? Do you think that's uh, uh, out of date after 70 years or need to be a new formula? Much water has flowed under the genome since then. <laughs> but the, the truth is that for India to obey the United Nations Security Council resolution. First, Pakistan needs to obey it. Because, it, no, not both. There is a clear timeline and a clear sort of uh, set of steps uh, that have to be followed. Uh, and the first precondition is that Pakistan withdraw its troops from the territorial boundaries of Jammu and Kashmir. Subsequent to that, India has to scale down. Now, there's no point asking India, are you willing to scale down when Pakistan has shown no willingness to withdraw? Uh, so it becomes a, uh, it's a, it's a theoretical question. Uh, no less a person than uh, one of the former uh, United Nations Secret uh, General Secretaries, uh, Secretary General in Delhi, he said that uh, this resolution now has no practical value. It's, it's more political uh, on, on the Pakistani side of the border. Uh, and in terms of actually affecting people's lives in Jammu and Kashmir, it doesn't have any practical relevance. So thank you, Mr. Abdullah, for joining us. It's an Antonis. It's a pleasure to have you here, and thanks for sharing your thoughts. Um, back when I was a master's student, we had to uh, always address a certain set of essay questions. And one of them was, 
Um, when you look at the India-Pakistan conflict, is Kashmir the symptom or the cause? And uh, it was a grueling essay to write. I'd be interested in your thoughts because I think they relate directly to your idea of a soft border because I think that's what you're speaking of. How possible is a soft border between India and Pakistan you know, in, in our lifetimes? Well, as I said earlier, uh, I believe we came reasonably close to it uh, with the dialogue between General Musharraf and first Prime Minister Vajpayee and then uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh. Uh, there was a fair degree of agreement on uh, the sort of Musharraf formula, which talked about uh, a softening of borders. Uh, now, this is limited to Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, it, it didn't mean that there's going to be a soft border running through Punjab, Rajasthan, uh, Gujarat. Uh, so, this sort of four-point formula and, and the discussions and uh, easing of movement for people was limited only uh, to the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, is it possible in our lifetime that we will see uh, a sort of European-type model in South Asia, I very much doubt it. Uh, if anything, uh, we are much further away from that sort of uh, ideal world today than we were when General Musharraf and uh, his Indian counterparts were talking to each other. Now, um, is Jammu and Kashmir uh, the cause or uh, is it the uh, symptom? I'm glad you had to write that essay. <laughs> I don't think I would have been able to. I, I, I honestly would not have been able to put it in either or. Uh, because for me, it has makings of, of both. Uh, but if you had to choose one, I'm glad you had to and I didn't. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, just in, in the book. Um, so I'm interested in the uh, like your reasoning about why uh, a solution that could be classified as a victory for either India or Pakistan isn't really sustainable, but where do other more Kashmiri actors like the more extreme organizations, like the militants or the Haryat, where do they fit into that sort of solution? Look, there will be elements of the population that will not buy into a solution uh, that sort of works that, that looks like what I've been talking about. But that's always the case, isn't it? You don't, you show me a peace process that has the 100% backing of the population that is involved in it. You need to get the majority. And if you can sell the majority of the population a solution that frees their lives from violence, that reduces the footprint of the security forces, that allows for the removal of laws like the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, the majority of the population will buy into that. Now, as far as the militant organizations are concerned, look, if India and Pakistan agree, and the support for militancy dries up, even they will not be able to sustain themselves. As for the Hurriyat Conference leadership, some of them will probably sign on. Uh, there are a handful I can think of who under no circumstances will support uh, an agreement between India and Pakistan. But like I said right in the beginning, if you get the majority uh, behind you, uh, I think that's, that's, that's what you have to work towards. That's, that's part of the problem. That's, see, that's one of the, the ways in which New Delhi has got itself an exit. Uh, when we talk about 
restoring autonomy. Look, let, I'll be, be honest here. It's not as if 100% of the population of Jammu and Kashmir favors autonomy. There are large pockets of population, particularly in Jammu, uh, Ladakh, uh, that aren't in favor of, of further autonomy to Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, so New Delhi often turns around, and tell, turns around and tells us, look, first decide amongst yourselves what you want, then come and ask us. So, I mean, our, our answer to them is, look, you have to carry the majority. The rest will, will sort of, they'll, they'll fall in line slowly. Uh, just to add a light word. My next question to you is uh, not as a like previous uh, chief minister or as a politician, but as a Kashmiri. Would you like Kashmir to be a part of India, like you're given a chance, or independent, or be a part of Pakistan, like where down the line India is going ahead towards development and chance for a normal Kashmiri to grow himself as a personal human being and uh, in terms of growth? Like if you compare a normal Gujarati or a Rajasthani or a person in Madhya Pradesh or Kerala. We were growing as well. We were growing really well up until 87, 88. Uh, I mean, if you see the sort of industry that was coming into Kashmir, uh, high tech, manufacturing, uh, tourism, uh, we were heaven on earth, tourists coming in from, from all corners of the world. So, I mean, it's not, uh, an absence of growth is not what sort of gave rise to the problem in Jammu Kashmir. Now, what would I want? Look, I'm logical enough to understand that an independent Jammu and Kashmir will not survive. There is no economic model that I can see that allows an independent Jammu and Kashmir to sustain itself. Leave aside the fact that you will be surrounded by three nuclear powers. Uh, I mean, it's, it's often I mean, said that the next wars are going to be over water uh, and not over oil. Look at the rivers that flow through Jammu and Kashmir. Are they not going to be a reason why either China, India, or Pakistan will move in and try and take over uh, all over again? That's the that's the sort of geostrategic part of it. The economic part. Uh, what model of economy allows a landlocked uh, state? In, in such a hostile environment to survive. I mean, we're not Switzerland. Um, and even Switzerland has had to make compromises from time to time. So, uh, so in an ideal world, sure, but I mean, this is a less than ideal world and logic would dictate that the decision that we took in 1947 was the right one. We just need to make it work better. Yeah, just the, the, the <coughs> Uh, you mentioned the rivers, and I would like to ask you how much does how much do you think the in this water treaty and its and its results kind of play a role in the way the two countries are reacting right now? Does does Kishan feature as a problem point in the way the two countries are uh, negotiating or not on Kashmir? I don't think uh, the Indus water treaty. <coughs> as such is a, is a problem area for India and Pakistan because it's the one thing that has sustained through all the turmoil. Uh, and there have been numerous voices that have called for India to pull out of the Indus Water Treaty, but it hasn't. Uh, I mean, so even sort of serious attacks like Parliament, Mumbai, etc., uh, have not sort of caused India to renege on its, uh, on its commitment to the Indus Water Treaty. So, 
I don't see them pulling back. There are ticklish issues that come up from time to time. Uh, Baglihar was one, we sorted that out. Kishan Ganga is a current flashpoint. That's largely because we're in a race. Uh, it's the same river, uh, what we call Kishan Ganga. The Pakistan calls the Neelam. Uh, there's a race to complete two competing power projects uh, on the Indian side and downstream on the Pakistani side. Because on the Indian side, if that project <coughs> finishes earlier, we divert that water out from uh, the Kishan Ganga and put it into the Wooler where it will flow out through the Jhelum. So, which renders the downstream project uh, sort of uh, less viable than it is right now. And similarly, there's a project in Jammu called Ratlai, uh, which is the subject of dispute. But we've always managed uh, through negotiation to sort it out. So, I don't think the Indus Water Treaty is, is much cause for concern for India and Pakistan. It's a problem for the people of Jammu and Kashmir because we believe that we have been sort of cheated of the use of our resources. Uh, the people of Jammu and Kashmir weren't exactly asked what they thought about uh, the Indus Water Treaty when it was agreed. And therefore, one of the sort of perennial points that my party has raised with the center is that the state of Jammu and Kashmir needs to be compensated uh, for its losses on account of the Indus Water Treaty. Thank you very much. Um, Kashmir conflict is, of course, not a bilateral issue, but a multilateral issue. So how would you evaluate the role of China in this setup? And China as a player which is increasingly proactive in the region. China's role has become uh, sort of even more significant uh, given Chinese investment in the region. Uh, the Obor uh, sort of project that they're involved in uh, passes through uh, the Pakistani part of Jammu and Kashmir, which is why India has had grave reservations signing on uh, to that uh, when uh, President Xi had his uh, big sort of rollout of this in Beijing. Uh, India uh, chose not to participate at all. Uh, China has become even more uh, important in terms of its activities in infrastructure development in the Pakistani side of Kashmir. In fact, I was remarking in an earlier sort of uh, event that uh, uh, one hears that there are more signboards uh, in, in Chinese and Mandarin, I guess, I'm not sure what you would call it, but there are more signs in their language uh, than there are in English and perhaps even in Urdu. Uh, so yes, China is an important player and uh, China has sort of time and again shown that its inclination as far as Jammu and Kashmir is concerned, is more towards Pakistan. Uh, you've seen more than once uh, when India has tried to have action sanctioned by the United Nations against Hafiz Sayyid, uh, China has, has vetoed uh, any action on, on that score. So uh, when we talk about Jammu and Kashmir from the India-Pakistan context, yes, we also need to factor in uh, China's role in the region. Uh, just to, to Thank you, Professor. Uh, my congratulations on being so candid. Uh, my name I'm is always worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody uh, says I've been candid. My question is about, uh, you very rightly pointed out that uh, you know the only viable thing would be 
the international recognition of this LOC as the international border and, and the situation. That, that seems plausible. But, but then the, uh, the narrative on both sides, unfortunately, is controlled by the conservatives. By? by, by there's a conservative you know, group which controls the narrative on both sides. Whereas the solution that you propose and which was in 2007 is more from a liberal and that and a moderate uh, group in the society which would, you know, are in power would bring about. But then it's controlled on both sides by the, by the conservatives. With the current uprising in Kashmir, which is seen in Pakistan as something very advantageous for their solution, it doesn't kind of push them to to talk about it and negotiate, rather see about it. Do you see that even this solution could come about in, in that well, clearly, the situation or the circumstances uh, are not favoring that at the moment. Uh, you have a uh, right-wing government uh, in New Delhi, a government that has talked about the complete integration of Jammu and Kashmir into the Union, rather than ceding more powers to the state. Uh, a, a party uh, in, in power in Delhi that likes to remind us of the uh, parliament resolution of 1994 uh, that mandates the government of India to bring back the part of Jammu and Kashmir uh, that is under Pakistani control at the moment. Uh, so uh, I'm not for a moment suggesting that the solution that I would like to see uh, is possible in the immediate uh, scenario. But one hopes, uh, I mean, nobody expected General Musharraf to pop up the way he did and, and create the situation that he did for an almost solution. Uh, one of the eternal regrets I will have is that it took India far too long to warm up to him. Uh, for far too long, he was seen as the architect of the Kargil War, uh, the general who refused to salute the Indian Prime Minister when he visited Lahore uh, at the inauguration of the Delhi-Lahore bus. And by the time New Delhi realized that he is a man we can do business with and, and can work with, unfortunately, General Musharraf had shot himself in the foot by sacking his uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice. And things unraveled from there. Uh, but, I mean, out of nothing, uh, you had the makings of a peace process. So who knows? Uh, post-2019, uh, I don't know what the, <laughs> I don't know what the Indian Parliament will look like. I can hazard a guess, but uh, let's see. Uh, we also don't know what the government in Islamabad is going to look like. But I hope uh, that continuous sort of at least with us talking about these possible solutions, somewhere it'll stick in the back of minds that matter, and they'll work towards it. The only thing we want is that they, they, they sort of shy away from believing that status quo is the best thing. Because that's the only thing we don't want. The status quo has gone on for too long. In, in terms of the human development and social progress in the state, uh, do you think having a separate uh, set of powers with the state has been a facilitator or an impediment? Uh, you think? It hasn't been. It hasn't been an impediment. Uh, if if autonomy was to the maximum extent possible, I'd like to believe it would actually uh, sort of uh, it would benefit the state. Uh, take a, a scenario wherein Jammu and Kashmir could set up for itself a distinct labour policy, 
different from uh, the rest of the Union. Uh, you could have, in effect, a, a, a special economic zone that covers the entire state of Jammu and Kashmir, as opposed to s uh, smaller pockets uh, with a distinct tax policy, labor policy, uh, industrial policy. Uh, so it's 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 not a hindrance. It, it can be used to its advantage, but we don't have it in its full form. Now, I I, I get the sense that you're actually talking about land ownership. Well, different aspects of general, you know, there are policies that are made in the center about uh, you know, social, social education. And well, see, the advantage, that's the advantage that the Jammu and Kashmir constitution affords us. We can cherry pick the bits that, that are advantageous to us and leave out the bits that are not. We did that with the... Uh, with the uh, local governance bills, uh, both the rural and urban, the panchayats and the, 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 the municipalities. Uh, we did not extend the union constitution amendments to Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, we only, we, we amended our own laws and cherry picked those bits of the central law that were most beneficial for the state, leaving out the parts that weren't. So, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd be able to do that with, with other laws and, and, and other rules as well. Uh, yeah. Just, just. Um, I was wondering, what would you think of the role of the uh, judicial impunity that the army exercises in Kashmir uh, has to play its role in the future that it's in under making for Kashmir and the whole of India, and also the role of social media that uh, fuses with uh, the Armed Forces uh, Special Protection Act, and how you know, uh, displays Kashmir to other parts of the country? Look, the Armed Forces Special Powers Act is hugely problematic. Mm -hmm. Any law that allows operations with, with, with the sort of immunity that the Armed Forces Special Powers Act allows is, is, is open to misuse. Uh, I understand that for any army, uh, and this is not just true for India, it's true for most other countries as well. Any army to operate within its own territorial boundaries, it requires a legal framework. Uh, the problem is when that legal framework is open to abuse. That having been said, I believe that the <coughs> manner in which the security forces are exercising their power is a lot more responsible today than it was 10, 15 years ago. That's not to suggest that incidents of human rights violations do not take place. They still do. But they are not happening with nearly the amount of frequency uh, that they were uh, maybe a decade, a decade and a half ago. Now, social media, in terms of the Armed Forces Special Powers Act? Yeah, the way uh, the rest of the country glorifies uh, the army's deeds in that place. And, uh, and especially with the incoming wave of nationalism in the country. I would like to know your opinion. How is, is that making a good future or a, or a bad future for <coughs> Well, look, I mean, it is what it is. It's, I mean, it, it doesn't, the way in which the role of the army is projected on social media doesn't make my life any tougher. Uh, it, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't have much of an impact. Uh, the way in which the media projects Jammu and Kashmir uh, and the way in which all sort of citizens of India are expected to sort of 
Tom Tom, their, their nationalistic spirit, morning, evening, morning, noon, and night, that is more problematic for me. Uh, I mean, I'm a Kashmiri Muslim, I'm a proud Indian, but I'll be damned if I'm supposed to stand up every day and do Jai Hind just to satisfy everybody. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't set that same standard for people from uh, Punjab or Haryana or Maharashtra, then don't set it for me either. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. But in terms of its link to the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, I don't really see any problem. Um, <coughs> So, who are the Kashmiri people? What does it mean to be Kashmiri? Has it changed from 1989? Do you think it's Who are the Kashmiri people? <laughs> what does it mean to be Kashmiri? Yeah. It's difficult. It's, how, I mean, how do I put this? It's an equal parts, something that fills us with hope, but it also fills us with sort of a sense of despair at what we've lost, at what could have been but wasn't. Uh, I, I honestly, don't know how to tell you what it feels to be a Kashmiri, more so because I don't want to run the risk of trying to project to you that I'm an average Kashmiri, because I, <coughs> it would be unfair on my part to suggest to you that anything in my upbringing is average Kashmiri. I am the product of a lot more privilege than most Kashmiris have had. And therefore, for me to sit here and try and tell you what it feels like to be a Kashmiri when I'm not the one who gets frisked by the security forces, I'm not the one who struggles to rent a flat in Delhi because of my name or my religion, uh, would be, I think, a huge disservice uh, to, to the people who actually have to struggle with all this. Uh, I mean, let me just say that we are a proud race, and and uh, we like being we like being Kashmir. <laughs> uh, is it just there? Uh, so just on the side there with that. So we've only got a few minutes left, so we'll keep questions nice and short. And I try and keep my answers short. I'm really sorry. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for your talk. It was really uh, one of the one of BJP's favorite things to talk about Kashmir is the rehabilitation of Kashmiri pundits. I was wondering what your view on this is. Like, should the state and union governments pursue this, and is it feasible? And if so, what are, like, are there, what are the challenges? Well, they absolutely have to pursue it. Uh, the Kashmiri pundits are an integral part of Jammu and Kashmir. That said, you can't force Kashmiri pundits to come back. The Kashmiri Pandits left because their sense of security was snatched away from them. The Kashmiri Pandits must be encouraged to come back by restoring that sense of security, which we haven't been able to do thus far. Uh, I don't see the current environment contributing towards that. 
it doesn't help when we make the return of the Kashmiri Pandits a political issue in the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. if, if the government and the center and the state are actually serious about Kashmiri Pandits returning, they need to do it in a way in which Kashmiri Pandits feel safe to come back to the states and not demand to live in enclaves and camps. If we're going to set up a containment, a walled area for them to live in, then that defeats the purpose. Uh, we need to be able to encourage them. Look, I know they won't go back to the villages from where they've left. I mean, a lot of Kashmiris have moved from villages to towns. So why should we expect the Kashmiri Pandits to go back to the villages uh, that they originally inhabited? But I'd like to believe they can come back to the larger towns and cities. Uh, but as I said, we need to restore their sense of security, which was snatched away from them in 1990. Yeah, uh, just here. Uh, Okay. Well, um, thank you. Just two questions really quick. Firstly, I think if it was possible, what do you think demilitarization would achieve? So I think I'm also asking, what do you think it's doing right now? What is, what is it contributing to and what is it hindering? Um, and also, on the other hand, to the degree of autonomy that you're talking about for Kashmir, how do you think the Kashmiri pundit situation sort of contributes to the Indian vision of how much autonomy um, Kashmir should have? Um, in that, how is it different from how we'd normally understand federalism? Sorry, what was the first part? The first part. Yeah, sorry, de uh, on demilitarization. Look, I think we need to understand that Jammu and Kashmir is never going to be completely demilitarized. You have India, I mean, you have China on one side, Pakistan on the other, both countries with whom we have fought wars. Uh, Jammu and Kashmir has always had a military presence, but it's largely been along the border, the line of control and the line of actual control. Uh, when we talk about demilitarization, when we talk about reducing the footprint of the security forces, we are talking about reducing it from civilian areas, uh, from the orchards that they occupy, from the schools and, and factories and, and stuff like that. To an extent, we succeeded. Uh, in the last year, or two years that unfortunately has had to be rolled back a bit because of the sort of spurt in, in violence. But I hope that once they get up control of the situation, they can start uh, again moving these 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 troops out from from uh, civilian areas. As I said, complete demilitarization is not going to happen. On uh, autonomy and and the Kashmiri Pandit issue, yes, I mean uh, to an extent. Uh, the current government's uh, perception about Jammu and Kashmir is uh, sort of influenced by how the Kashmiri Pandit uh, community see it. Uh, the BJP has made no secret of the fact that they believe that the primary party to what has happened in Jammu and Kashmir is the Kashmiri Pandits, and, and uh, uh, their, their sort of resettlement is, is a big issue for them. Uh, whether that impacts how uh, the government of India sees autonomy or not, I don't know. Uh, I've yet to have somebody in the government of India object to greater autonomy to Jammu and Kashmir simply because of how somebody from the Kashmiri Pandit community has seen it. As far as, as uh, sort of autonomy and, and federalism is concerned, as I said, uh, what, we, what we sort of envisage for Jammu and Kashmir, there's no reason why similar models with a bit of give and take can't be applied to other states in the union as well. You constantly have chief ministers screaming uh, that the center meddles uh, in, 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 in what they do. 
especially if the chief minister belongs to an opposition party uh, from the party that's in power at the at the center. I mean, two examples being Mamta Banerjee and and uh, Arvind Kejriwal. Uh, so I mean, there's no reason why if an autonomy model in Jammu and Kashmir works, it can't work for other states in the country as well. Apologies, this will have to be the last question. Take two. Take two. Okay, let's take uh, two to the yeah, hair in uh, the blue and then uh, just behind. Yeah, thank you very much. I just had one, two very short questions. You, you pointed out sorry, that you don't see um, the solution, the autonomy you uh, draw as very likely in the immediate future, but could you maybe say some possible steps how to get to that situation? And secondly, do you see any role of the international community or do you see this as something internal? Other states are not getting? Well, the international community's role sort of expands uh, when tensions between India and Pakistan increase. Uh, when things are relatively calm on the surface, the international community steps back. I think the only thing the international community can do is encourage India and Pakistan to keep talking to each other. Uh, a breakdown in communication helps nobody. Uh, I don't believe we're talking to each other as much today as we need to. Uh, I think for some reason, Prime Minister Modi, uh, I think, feels slighted. And I, I guess I can't blame him to an extent also. I mean, after inviting uh, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif to his swearing in and then dropping in in Lahore for the family wedding, uh, there hasn't been as much uh, in terms of a response from Pakistan uh, that Prime Minister Modi can work with. So that's, I mean, the international community can certainly help. The, the, the tricky part is that uh, India has made it very clear uh, that mediation is not acceptable. Facilitation is fine, mediation isn't. So I think the international community needs to be very careful not to cross that line where it looks like they're starting to mediate a problem. Uh, so, I mean, President Trump has this habit of uh, <laughs> injecting himself into, into everything. So the last thing I think we need is for him to wake up one morning and decide to tweet. <laughs> I would like to... Uh, I, will, I, will, I will involve myself in bringing India and Pakistan closer together and then all hell will break loose. So yeah, we can, we can, uh, we can avoid that. And what was the first part? Uh, about possible steps towards... Yeah, well, that's... People like my job uh, to encourage government of India uh, to keep the dialogue process similar to what we would expect with India and Pakistan. Similarly, a dialogue process needs to continue between the state of Jammu and Kashmir and uh, the central government. Uh, it took a long time, but we have uh, an interlocutor uh, that has been appointed by uh, the government of India. He's made one visit to Jammu and Kashmir. It hasn't been very successful. We are still not sure as to how well-intentioned uh, government of India is, but we'll keep chipping away, and as long as there is dialogue, uh, there is always the hope of, of a solution. We've almost made it without mention of Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Last question of the evening, so respect people as well. Sorry, thank you for the answers to the uh, questions. But I was just wondering, you were speaking about compromise and give and take earlier. And as a Kashmiri Muslim, I was wondering, you know, what reasons uh, would India, uh, why, why should India give anything to Pakistan given that the status quo works in India's favor um, and Pakistan can't really offer anything or even hurt India in any meaningful way? That's true. And that's, I think, 
the crux of our problem. Uh, Jammu and Kashmir doesn't contribute to the national polity enough for it to be uh, an important enough issue uh, for the center to, to, to tackle. Six seats in parliament out of 530 something, I'm not even sure what these are, 540 something, I'm not sure what the exact number is, I'm not even going to mention that. But yeah, uh, six seats in parliament, uh, 10 if you include the Rajya Sabha. Uh, I, I mean, I do, I, I do see why uh, governments at the center would be reluctant because a solution in Jammu and Kashmir is not going to be an easy sell in the rest of the country. Uh, so, I mean, there's always this political give and take, right? I mean, if you if you surrender autonomy to Jammu and Kashmir, you'll you'll sort of lose political space in states that matter, like UP and Madhya Pradesh and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, a part of the country is suffering. Uh, that has to count for something. Uh, there is restiveness. There is there is unhappiness. There is suffering, uh, and and that really must count for something. Now, what can Pakistan give? Pakistan can give a lot. Uh, it's it's not in India's interest to have a hostile neighbor on its western front. It isn't in India's interest. It drains it drains an enormous amount of our resources. Look, I do understand that there is a vested interest in part for this for this problem to fester. Uh, there are any number of people who sell arms and, and, and ammunition uh, to both countries. They would love for this problem to persist. But just imagine if a fraction of our defense budget went into actually sort of improving things in the country, what a huge difference it would make. So, I mean, that in itself should be incentive enough for the government sitting in Delhi and hopefully in, in Islamabad. Uh, to 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 work out a, a permanent solution, we can we can bicker over other things that I mean le or have lesser importance, but at least something like this that has so much impact on on people's lives. And I, I, I'm sorry to sort of go on, but what happens in Jammu and Kashmir is not just confined to Jammu and Kashmir now, is it? I mean, you've had Delhi, you've had Mumbai, you've had so many other sort of areas where this conflict has spilled over. So I mean, I guess that's incentive enough. For, uh, I know you, you, you're, you're skeptical, and I, you have every reason to be. I, I guess, I'd like to be hopeful. I'm, I mean, cautiously. I mean, I'm not even optimistic. I mean, it's just cautious optimism. But you have to live in hope. Otherwise, how do you get up in the morning and go to work? <laughs> Honestly, see, and, and especially in, in Jammu and Kashmir, as beautiful as it is, it's incredibly troubled. I mean, what, what, what do I tell people there? If I can't sell them, at least the glimmer of hope that tomorrow is going to be a little better. Uh, it hasn't happened so far, but fingers crossed. Uh, Mr. Engelson. What do you think about Modi Jews' demonetization? <laughs> it was a shock. And uh, look. It, it, it hasn't worked by no sort of uh, yardstick of, that you choose to measure it by. Has it worked? Violence in Jammu and Kashmir has gone up. It hasn't gone down. Uh, cash in the economy is almost at the same levels as it was pre-demonetization. Uh, the rich are still as rich. Uh, the corrupt are still as corrupt. 
uh, I mean, you recently raided uh, a, a television station in, in Tamil Nadu belonging to uh, one of the political parties there. And, and how much was it? A hundred and something crores in cash? Some astronomical number. So, I mean, all you've done is added to joblessness, you put the economy into a fair degree of distress, and they're scrambling in Gujarat, you can see it. It's, I mean, there is clearly sort of a, a panic that is set in, and it's demonetization, so I'm not a big fan. Thank you so much.